Welcome to Brooklyn's Members TV and Podcast. I'm Steve Clark and I'm delighted to be joined by the former director and CEO of Brooklyn's Museum and now Vice President of the Brooklyn's Museum Trust, Alan Wynn. Hi Steve. Good afternoon, sir. I trust you're well. I am indeed and even coping with lockdown. Excellent. Firstly, Alan, uh, congratulations on being awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award at the RAC Club's inaugural Historic Award. Can you tell us the full story? Um, yeah, well, I, um, uh, as you said, that, that was their first um, Historic uh, Awards, which they uh, hosted last year. Um, I was uh, honoured to be a judge on those awards, and then uh, it came as a complete surprise to me when uh, they announced that, uh, that they they had decided to uh, give me their um, uh, lifetime achievement award, um, but it it I guess reflects on a lot of um, uh, a lot of history in uh, motoring, especially in historic motoring. Mm, absolutely. Well, I'm sure we all congratulate you on uh, the first award. Let's hope there are many more. Um, so back to the topic for today: um, the Napier Rowton, perhaps one of the most famous and iconic cars in the world. Let's turn the clock back to the early 1930s and the concept of the car. Why was it built? Who designed it? Who built it? And eventually who raced it? Yeah. Well, um, I guess the starting point uh, was um, the, uh, the guy who commissioned it, um, John Cobb, um, a wealthy amateur uh, driver who'd been making his way up through the ranks, uh, driving a variety of cars, and he'd got as far as the famous um, uh, V12 uh, Delage land speed record car, which he'd been racing for some time. He wanted something better than, than that car, and he wanted something specifically to uh, tackle uh, not only racing on the outer circuit at Brooklands, uh, and to take the lap record there, but also to undertake long distance uh, records, you know, 12 hour, 24 hour runs, that sort of thing. And that's what he um, asked to be built for him. Um, the, uh, the job was given to Thompson and Taylors who were based at the Southern end of uh, Brooklyn's in the, uh, in the um, uh, aviation park down there. Um, and the task was given to um, uh, Reed Railton to actually design the car uh, to make something was, which was going to be very fast and uh, ultra reliable. And so that's what he set about doing. Um, and the key to that was um, getting hold of a, an extremely powerful and reliable and lightweight uh, engine, the Napier, the, uh, Napier Lion. Uh, and then he designed a suitable, very robust chassis to go with it. And what was the build time on it, Alan? How long did the overall project take from start to to, to actually the first time it was tried? Uh, we, we think it took about nine months uh, for the car to be built. Um, uh, the whole thing had to be designed from scratch. Um, there's nothing on it other than the steering box that's uh, been borrowed from any other motor car. Uh, the steering box came from a Speed 6 Bentley, but everything else was purpose designed. And so 
Uh, we, we are actually fortunate now to own uh, the bulk of the manufacturing drawings for the car at the museum and they are dated 1932-1933. Um, uh, the car first appeared uh, in the middle of the 1933 season. So I'm sure I've asked you this before, but do we know what the overall cost was back in the day, Alan, to get it built, designed? Um, allegedly, uh, the, I've never seen an invoice, uh, <laughs> but uh, allegedly it was about £10,000. Um, which would be, um, <clears throat> I don't know, uh, it's certainly going to be over half a million pounds in today's money, probably approaching a million. Mm. So why is it so special, Alan? Well, uh, as I say, it's, it's an absolutely bespoke car designed for one purpose, um, obviously built at Brooklands, which makes it very special. Um, the fastest car ever around the Brooklands uh, outer circuit which makes it doubly special. Uh, the first car uh, ever to average 150 mile an hour for 24 hours, which it did on the salt flats at Bonneville in 1936. That makes it triply special. And of course, uh, the, the thing that caps it all off is that it, it now lives back where it was built and is the, uh, the star of the Brooklyn's Museum Automotive Collection. Hmm. So how many records does it hold, Alan? I won't ask you to list them all, I'm sure you know them, but um, how many does it hold? It, it, it broke uh, some 47 national and international records in its time, and some of those have still not been beaten, obviously the major one being uh, the, uh, the all-time outer circuit lap record of 143.44 miles an hour. Uh, which equates to uh, doing the two and three quarter mile lap in 69 seconds, wow. um, which was an amazing record. There are some other um, uh, time distance records which nobody has actually uh, broken subsequently, but they're relatively minor ones. Hmm. So tell us the backstory of how it came back to Brooklands. Well, um, the, the car, uh, after it was um, uh, owned by John Cobb, he retired it in 1937 when uh, it became obvious to him that uh, Ebby, the uh, Brooklyn's handicapper, had completely got the measure of him and there was no way that he was going to be able to win handicap races with it anymore uh, because he just kept getting handicapped out of contention. So he retired the car and then embarked on his... Uh, his second great automotive adventure, which was to build a true land speed record car, which was the twin engined uh, Railton Special, with which he broke the, uh, the world land speed record twice just before the war and just after the war. And that car was also built by Thompson and Taylor at Brooklands. But the car uh, then languished uh, for a while. There was no real uh, racing uh, opportunities for it. Um, it was hired. Uh, to star in a truly awful movie called Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, starring James Mason, which was uh, filmed in various places, including on the uh, sands at Pendine. Um, and then uh, eventually after John Cobb's death, uh, when he was chasing the water speed record, it was bought by the GQ Parachute Company. And uh, they had it adapted by uh, Thompson and Taylor 
to uh, to create a mobile test bed for aircraft breaking parachutes, um, and it uh, it entered that role in the mid 1950s. Um, after uh, GQ had finished their uh, work with it, which was largely done on the uh, runway at Dunsfold Aerodrome, um, it was acquired by the late uh, Hon Patrick Lindsay, um, who uh, raced it in vintage races, um, and did all sorts of things with it. Uh, eventually he uh, sold it, it went to the Midland Motor Museum uh, in Bridge North, um, and from there, it ended up um, being owned by um, the late uh, Victor Gauntlet. And it was Victor who sold the car at auction uh, in about 1990, and it disappeared from view after that auction. Now, how did it finish up making its way to the museum, Alan, as the car we know today? Yeah, um, well, uh, later on in the 1990s, um, uh, Andrew Wood from P&A Wood and uh, Lucas Hooney, a, a, a prominent uh, dealer from Switzerland, uh, went to uh, see a German collector um, who had a Phantom 3 Rolls-Royce that, uh, that Lucas was interested in buying. He took Andrew along uh, to... Uh, do a, an inspection of the car um, and uh, when they got there Andrew pointed out that well the Phantom 3 was just yet another of the 200 and whatever it was Phantom 3s uh, lying under a dust sheet in the corner of the uh, collection was the Napier Railton uh, which was far more interesting to both of them and uh, the upshot was that uh, Lucas bought the car um, shipped it to the UK. Uh, it went on display briefly at Bewley. Um, I think it appeared at the uh, at an early Goodwood Festival of Speed, and then Lucas agreed to um, provisionally sell it to the museum um, and gave the museum time to raise the funds to buy it. And thereby hangs another story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, you mentioned that the car was modified by Thompson and Taylor um, for the parachute uh, testing. How much, uh, how much of original is it that now in the museum? It, how much has it changed from that original John Cobb Reed Routen design? Well, the um, uh, probably um, the, the only major change that's visible now um, uh, is the braking system. Uh, because when they were testing the, um, the, the aircraft braking parachutes, they were doing repeated stops from 140 miles an hour, uh, which was roughly the landing speed of a first generation jet fighter like a Hawker Hunter. Um, and uh, they decided they needed something better than the two wheel drum brakes with which the car had always run. Um, it didn't actually need much in the way of braking for running on the outer circuit at Brooklands and it didn't need uh, any brakes at all for doing 24-hour runs on the salt at Bonneville. Um, so uh, the uh, the drum brakes were replaced by some fantastic 15-inch uh, disc brakes which were made specially for the car by Dunlop. Um, other than that, 
the uh, the principal changes are that the rear of the bodywork is not the original. Uh, when uh, the car was being used for uh, making the the awful film Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, uh, they fitted a very long tapering tail to it and fitted a different uh, radiator cowling. Fortunately, the original cowling survived, but the original tail didn't. Um, and so the original cowl was put back on the car uh, later on, but the original tail had disappeared. And so in the 60s, a new tail was made, and that's the one that's on the car now. And then underneath, um, the original 65 gallon fuel tank has uh, gone west. Uh, it went when the long tapered uh, uh, tail was built for the, for the film. And then when it was being used for parachute testing, they didn't have uh, room under that bodywork for uh, a big tank and a little 16 gallon tank was fitted. And uh, the car still has a 16 gallon tank, which would give it a range of about 50 miles in normal motion. Alan, you've driven the car at many events worldwide, including Pebble Beach, I believe in 2007. What did it feel like the first time you sat in Cobb's seat and drove that car? Yeah, well, I, the first time I drove it, um, other than having done a practice start um, uh, in the paddock, where it was at uh, the Goodwood Revival uh, in 2003, I think. Um, and literally, we'd done a practice start uh, in the outfield, and then uh, we uh, pushed it. Um, we were doing a, a demonstration uh, on the track in company of another 15 or 16 cars and I asked to uh, run at the back of the field because literally I had never driven the car um, and uh, so um, the team ably led by Jeff Dovey who'd been looking after the car and driving it uh, for um, uh, previous few years um, they uh, gave me a shove I let the clutch in um, and away it went and the the immediate thing was was what an amazing car it is to drive because it is so well balanced um, everything works pretty much as you would expect it to um, it's very very high geared um, on the current tires uh, which are 721s um, it's geared to do 64 mile an hour per thousand rpm in top gear right. so you really have to you really have to get used to uh, that very high gearing, uh, which means that most of the corners on most of the racetracks uh, in the UK are too tight to be taken in top gear. Um, uh, that's that's the big thing you have to learn. Um, it ha it has a, uh, a beautifully progressive but incredibly heavy clutch, uh, which uh, takes some uh, gentle feeding you can't give the car lots of uh, revs to get it off the line you have to feed in the clutch very gently um, uh, at, at sort of idle speed and then let it go away from there it, it only has a three-speed gearbox with no reverse uh, which makes uh, maneuvering in tight spaces uh, a real challenge especially as it has a 22 meter turning circle um, which is, so the whole thing's a bit like uh, steering the uh, Queen Mary in and out of Southampton docks. Um, uh, but this this little uh, three-speed gearbox 
there's enormous gaps between the uh, uh, each pair of ratios. Uh, there's a step up of about 1.8 to 1 um, between each uh, pair of gears. So whereas it does 64 mile an hour per thousand in top, it does 37 per thousand in second and 22 per thousand in first. So you have to really think about letting the revs die between uh, gears on the way up and then you have to really think about uh, changing down um, with uh, uh, working with advice from uh, P&A Wood we limit the engine these days to normally about 1800 rpm uh, so uh, if you're doing a thousand rpm in top that's 1800 rpm in second so you can't use the gearbox to slow the car down uh, you know, you've got quite a tight uh, uh, limit within which you can operate. So you have to think about all your slowing down well in advance, even though the brakes are quite, they're fade free, they don't do a huge amount of stopping. There's two tons of motor car to be stopped on two wheel brakes. Uh, so on a, on a circuit, you really have to think about slowing down before other people around you slow down. And then you have to get the revs down below a thousand RPM before you can go for the next gear. And so all that needs to be borne in mind when you're out there mixing it with other people and bearing in mind that um, 1800 RPM in top is about 118 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, if you've gone above that to 2000 RPM, that's 128 miles an hour. And so <clears throat> you've got a lot of motor car to slow down uh, using basic engine compression and then and the brakes and really thinking about what you're doing. And while you're doing all that, you have to remember that the steering is relatively heavy. It's very accurate, very precise, but you do have this problem of, uh, of uh, very limited steering lock. So you can't afford to get the tail out of shape uh, by pushing, uh, pushing your foot hard too hard down because you haven't got enough steering lock to bring it back. Um, as you've said, Alan, there are strict limits on the rev band of the engine. This is a bit of a uh, tempting question, but is there a, ever been a temptation to open the throttle wide as Cobb would have done back in the day? Um, <laughs> no, uh, not really. Um, uh, I, I'm in the very fortunate position of um, having driven one of the very few other cars which has a, um, uh, a Lion engine in it. Um, the uh, Napier Bentley, which now belongs to Chris Williams. Yeah. Um, the previous owner, Peter Morley, let me drive that on Donington many, many years ago. Um, and it's much lower geared than uh, the Railton is. And uh, with that car, um, I was urged not to go over 3,200 RPM uh, because there is allegedly an awkward crankshaft vibration period at 3.2. Um, but I ran that car up to 3,000 RPM in top gear, um, so I know what it's like. One of these engines really is quite exciting at that sort of speed. Uh, even uh, approaching 2,000 RPM, you start to get the most fantastic bark from the exhaust. Uh, it's got this gentle rumble uh, at, at low revs, uh, but once you get up towards 2,000 RPM, it really starts uh, to, to make a, a noise uh, as you would expect an aeroplane engine to make. Yeah. 
and clearly I'd imagine the engine is more comfortable when it's performing like that anyway. Yeah, uh, the, the engine was designed to run at a constant 2,500 RPM. Uh, and so I have no doubt whatsoever that it could carry on doing that um, uh, for, for a very long time. That's what it was specifically designed to do. Uh, but much less happy at very low RPM because in the car, of course, unlike in an aeroplane, uh, it doesn't actually have a proper flywheel. It just has this huge 16-inch diameter clutch. Uh, but in an aeroplane, it would have been connected to a 12-foot diameter uh, four-bladed wooden flywheel called a propeller. Yeah. Um, and so it gets a bit uh, jerky and so forth at, at low RPM. But when when you get it up, um, sort of over 1500 RPM, it's uh, it's really intelligent. Um, you talked about obviously the uh, restrictions on the rev limit. Um, What's the current life expectancy of the engine and transmission now at the moment? Well, we're not quite sure. What we do know uh, is that the engine itself, um, we had the, the cylinder blocks, uh, it's a fixed head engine, we had the cylinder blocks off uh, five or six years ago uh, because she was getting a wee bit smoky. And so we had new piston rings uh, fitted at that stage, um, uh, P&A Wood had them made and uh, and fitted them. And at that stage, they took all the uh, the valve gear and so forth apart. You have to take it apart the way the engine is built in order to get the blocks off. Um, it still has its original pistons and valves, um, even though uh, it did about well, over 12,000 racing miles before the war. And then it's had all the uh, abuse of parachute testing and filmmaking, including being driven into the sea at Bendine, um, and uh, numerous demonstration runs all over the world since. Uh, so the pistons and bearings are original despite all that. And the valve guides um, are also the originals. And um, when Andrew would uh, mic them up, they are almost half worn. Uh, so there's a fair indication that there's quite a lot of life left in the engine yet. Uh, we do know that uh, when, uh, I think when Midland Motor Museum had the car, they had to, or it might have even been when Patrick Lindsay had it, uh, second gear uh, had to be replaced. Uh, it's the one that probably takes the bulk of uh, uh, the load, especially uh, when the car's being raced, because as I said on so many circuits um, you, know, you end up using second gear quite a lot uh, and it had obviously had a hard life but as far as I know that's the only change that's ever been made to the gearbox. Uh, the clutch we had to have relined um, several years ago uh, it's now bedded in nicely but yeah uh, as it stands there's no underward noises from the gearbox uh, we've relined the brakes uh, we have we have dozens of spare brake pads for it now. Um, so really, uh, uh, as long as it's looked after with care and driven with sympathy, uh, there's no reason why it shouldn't keep on running for many, many years to come. Wonderful. Um, one question that um, I think gets asked all the time is, um, and it keeps coming up, why is it push started and not towed? Um, 
there, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, in period, it was always push started, uh, except in uh, 1936, when for the 24 hour run at Bonneville, they actually fitted an extraordinary uh, electric starter to the car, uh, which is an electric motor uh, on a swivel mounting uh, position just in front of the right hand rear wheel with a roller on the uh, on the uh, output shaft of the motor and when you pulled a big lever it brought the roller in contact with the rear tyre and it bump started it. Um, I was delighted to find when we uh, acquired the uh, the works drawings for the car a couple of years ago uh, included in those drawings uh, all the drawings for um, making one of those uh, electric starter installations and it's something that I'd love to see done at some stage. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the reason why um, we don't tow it uh, to start it um, uh, normally is very simple that um, uh, when you let the clutch in um, uh, you tend to get a big um, uh, rush of power when the engine starts and you've got to be quite a dab hand or foot uh, with the clutch and I wouldn't want to have a tow vehicle um, uh, eight or ten feet in front of me uh, really? when, when I'm letting the clutch in. It's just, it's just too fraught. We have uh, done a couple of tow starts uh, in the old days when uh, the, um, the vintage paddock at the Festival of Speed was down in the cathedral paddock and a couple of times we had to tow start it uphill because of where we were uh, positioned. Uh, but it was it wasn't a happy experience, and I'm much much happier using half a um, a, a rugby pack to start it. <laughs> Indeed, and a good slope. Um, final question, Alan. I know you've touched upon um, other cars in this class. Uh, what was it like to drive in that era? Do you think, and how did it compare to others? Um, certainly, from uh, having driven a, a number of. Uh, the big cars. Most recently I had the fantastic opportunity uh, which uh, the, the outcome of which you will appear uh, you will see in the uh, in a future issue of the bulletin. Um, I for instance drove the um, uh, the Bernardo Hassan special which was the second fastest car around uh, Brooklands. Uh, I drove the two cars back to back uh, at the Millbrook uh, test centre and what comes out of that is uh, how relaxed and comfortable the railton is to drive uh, compared with the more uh, circuit racer oriented cars um, the the suspension of the railton uh, with those unique um, double leaf springs at the back um, is that has actually got a very low rate to it so it tends it's Although the car is big and heavy, uh, it tends to sort of smother the bumps, and and the the ride you get um, is very well damped. Very, uh, it doesn't bounce around over bumps, uh, and so you get you get a very comfortable ride. Um, the the bodywork um, uh, is really quite roomy, and there's enough bodywork around you that you don't suffer from a lot of wind buffeting. And something like the Bonato or any of the other narrow single seaters of the time you've got an elbow out in the breeze on each side um, and you tend to be 
buffeted by the wind a lot. With the Railton, you get none of that. Um, you've got the same little aero screen that you have on other cars. Um, so a lot of the air goes over the top of your head. Um, but uh, what, what you get is you're sitting, you're sitting in this amazing, uh, almost a sort of bubble of calm. Uh, it's a bit like sitting in your favourite armchair, reading the times at 120 miles an hour. <laughs> Uh, Excellent. Uh, the the seat the seat although it's got a very upright uh, backrest to it is is very comfortable. Uh, it's still the uh, is certainly the original backrest. We think the uh, the cushion has probably been changed. Probably the only difficulty in terms of comfort in driving it is that the um, uh, the the footwell is is quite narrow. There's not a lot of room there for your feet. Uh, despite the uh, huge overall size of the car, uh, because the um, the engine and uh, and the clutch are both very wide, so the space between um, the, uh, the 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 clutch and the uh, and the uh, the outside of the chassis is really quite small. So you have to have quite dainty feet, um, and uh, some people find uh, it's easier to drive without shoes because there's so little space there. Alan, it's been a pleasure to talk with you today and thank you for your support in keeping Brooklands alive during these very unusual times. Great to see you and keep well and keep safe. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure to talk. I could talk for another hour on it and not even touch uh, a lot of the subject, but it's a fantastic thing to talk about and really appreciate the opportunity to do so. Thank you.